Hi, it's Martine Powers, host of Post Reports. If you value this podcast and you would like to support the reporting behind it, please consider a subscription to The Washington Post. Right now, you can get one year of unlimited access to The Post for just $29. Learn more and subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe, or click the link in today's show notes. I hope you'll consider and thank you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 18th. So throughout history, Juneteenth has been known by many names. Jubilee Day, Freedom Day, Liberation Day, Emancipation Day, and today, a national holiday. This week, Congress rushed to pass a bill officially recognizing the holiday of Juneteenth. This holiday has been at the center of decades of advocacy, and for a long time, there were Republican holdouts. But this week, some of that opposition fell away, a bill was quickly passed in the House and the Senate, and then suddenly, June 19th was a federal holiday. And I see members of Congress, members of the Congressional Black Caucus, members of the United States Senate who passed this bill unanimously. And all... All of whom, collectively, were responsible for delivering this bill to the president's desk. The holiday of Juneteenth has attracted more and more attention in recent years, but it started out in Texas, a commemoration of June 19th, 1865, when enslaved people in the state were finally informed that they had been freed two years earlier by the Emancipation Proclamation. 156 years ago, the enslaved people of Texas learned the news. They learned that they were free and they claimed their freedom. This year, June 19th falls on a Saturday, so hundreds of thousands of federal employees suddenly got today off. And while for some people it might just feel like an extra holiday, for many others it also feels like a turning point. And with that I say, happy Juneteenth, everybody. And with that I introduce... I want to start by asking, what does Juneteenth represent to you? Well, it represents a memory of a family day in Conroe, Texas, in Livingston, Texas, the places where I spent my years growing up. It was a day for the community to get together and barbecue and drink red soda water and have a good time. As I got older, I understood the importance of the holiday, but it makes me think about family. That's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of Juneteenth. Annette Gordon-Reed is a preeminent historian and law professor at Harvard, and she is also a Texan who grew up celebrating this holiday. She's written a new book. It's called On Juneteenth, and it's about this day and its complicated history. But it's also a more personal story about her memories growing up as a Black kid in Texas, the painful experiences that went along with that, but also the pride that she has for her home state. When I first 
learned that people outside of Texas were celebrating Juneteenth, I have to say I felt a little twinge of possessiveness because it had been our holiday, first Black people's holiday, Black Texans' holiday, and it was a chance for us to get together. Everybody celebrated the 4th, but this was supposed to be for us. And then it wasn't until later that I realized that, you know, when Black people left Texas, going west, where most of them went west, but they went other places as well, they took the holiday with them. And it made sense that they would do that, and they managed to convince people that it was a day that should be celebrated and commemorated. So I've watched it grow from something that was deeply personal to something that's recognized all over the country. And I'm also told that some places in the world know about Juneteenth, which is is astonishing to me to see how it it has sort of grown in stature and celebration. And I think it really has been the passion of Texans who have celebrated this holiday since 1866, every year since then. And the commitment to it is something that people recognize. I love the idea that you said of the commitment that Black Texans have to celebrating this holiday and all that it represents to them. And I think that's an interesting idea that came up in your book about how there is this stereotype of what Texas is and who is a Texan. And that in some ways, that is a stereotype that ignores or glosses over the experience of Black Texans. Absolutely. I say in the book plainly that Texas has been constructed as a white man. People think of a cowboy, even though many cowboys were black, but in the Hollywood version of cowboys, they are white, a gunfighter, the cattle rancher, or the oil man. But leaving the plantation owner out of that, the person, the figure who was an integral part of Texas, plantation society is not in that picture, but it's not in most people's understanding of what Texas is about. And what do you think accounts for that? What accounts for it? Well, I think it's a more attractive story. I mean, it's it's a less racially complicated, less perhaps guilt-inducing story about Texas. The story of slavery is just something that people would prefer not to talk about or to leave to Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama and those places, even though Texas was a plantation society made by people who came from those states, many people who left those states seeking their fortune, seeking to build a life in what would be a new cotton empire. The father of Texas, Stephen F. Austin, the son of Moses Austin, who was given the right to bring settlers into Texas, understood and actually said that they would not be able to be prosperous or they faced prospects of being poor for a very long time without slavery. Austin is the capital of Texas. There are universities named after him. And he's a central figure in Texas. There's no question about that. But you also have to talk about the fact that he knew that the new colonists, the people who were coming there, would have to rely on the institution of slavery if they wanted to really make their way in the territory. One thing I want to ask you is this idea of origin stories that you explore in this book and stories that aren't told about Black history that paint a more complex picture of how Black people in the U.S. lived before 1865. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea? 
Well, I think if you were to ask anybody when the first people of African descent got to the Americas, people would say at Jamestown in 1619. And that's an important jumping off point. And I understand why people fasten upon that because it's the start of British America. But I think it's important to know that there were people of African descent in the Americas 100 years before then. They came with Spanish explorers. Most of them were enslaved. Some of them were not. Some of them struck out on their own. And I'm thinking of the ones who came to the area that became Texas and Central America and often to South America and mixed with indigenous people there, started their own societies there in Veracruz. There's in the 1500s, there's a a group of people who are people of African descent in those areas. And I think it's important for African-Americans not to think that their only antecedents, the only people who matter, were the people in the past who spoke English. Well, one of the ideas that you bring up in the book that I found very powerful was the sense that one of the ways of kind of asserting power during slavery was by limiting the Black imagination and limiting people's understanding of what other Black experiences were out there. And in some ways, it feels like that is a relevant thought to today in terms of what happens when you can kind of expand our sense of what it was like to be a Black person in the 1500s or 1600s or 1700s, and that those experiences were more wide-ranging than the sort of simplicity of the horrors of slavery that we tend to understand. Yeah. You're talking about human beings, and They did all kinds of things. They had all kinds of feelings. They had all kinds of strengths and weaknesses. And you need to know that. Certainly, if you think about um, enslavers and their response to free Black people. I mean, the, the existence of free Black people, the idea was to make life as hard for them as possible so that they couldn't succeed because they knew that they stood as a testament against the idea that the natural state of black people was enslavement. And so if you see people who aren't enslaved and they are making a living, they are living and functioning, then it puts the lie to the idea that the system was something that was natural and made sense. So they went out of their way to limit the opportunities of free Blacks. They stopped them from doing those things because they did not want them to succeed because that would be an example to other Blacks who were enslaved. So limiting Blackness, limiting the ideas of what Black people can do was integral to maintaining a racial hierarchy and trying to justify a system where Black people were being held down. One of the interesting things that you do in this book is that you both provide more perspective on origin stories of Black people at large, of African-Americans and African-Americans in Texas, but also you kind of reassess your own origin stories and that relationship that you have with Texas and the relationship that you have with being a kid of integration. So can you talk a little bit about your own personal experiences as a kid who essentially integrated a school? I started school in the middle of the 1960s when jurisdictions around the country 
were trying to resist the ruling in Brown versus Board of Education, saying that separate was inherently unequal and schools were supposed to be integrated. Well, in my area and in other places, they came up with something called the Freedom of Choice Plan. And freedom of choice sounds good, right? You know, who doesn't want freedom of choice? But freedom of choice, what it really meant was white parents would choose white schools and black parents would choose black schools. And my parents decided to do something different with me. I had been at kindergarten at the black school, Booker T. Washington, where my mother taught. And they decided to send me to Anderson Elementary School, which was a white school. So I knew that this was a big deal. But they didn't make a big deal of it in the way we typically think of. You think of Ruby Bridges or people being escorted to school or the Little Rock Nine through crowds of people yelling and screaming and so forth. But I wasn't escorted to school. My father drove me to school every morning when I was in elementary school. But it really was not normal. I remember groups of people, educators, teachers from other places or administrators who would come and stand in the doorway and watch and look at me in the classroom and sort of wonder about this thing, have this phenomenon of having a black student with groups of white. So I knew I was on display. Some of the kids were nice. Some of them were not. And some of them who were nice, I noticed if I saw them in town when they were with their family in some way, would not be friendly if I you know, spoke to them in a friendly way or whatever. And I could tell that they knew that their parents wouldn't like it if they were seen to be too friendly with me. And so that, that was a valuable lesson, too, that made me think about race and the demands of race upon people. What I also found surprising, though, was I think that it's easy for me to imagine how isolating it would be to be the first Black kid in an all-white school and the sense of other kids not being friendly toward you or just kind of ostracizing you. But you sort of point out that there's also that reverse experience of going back to your community, going back to your friends and the kids you grew up with and feeling like there is this other isolation of not being among the other Black kids that are part of your life up until that point. When the court struck down Freedom of Choice Plan, everybody had to move from their schools and they had to leave Washington School and go to white schools. There was resentment against me. There were some Black kids who resented that. And I give an anecdote. I talk about a a young, young boy who saw who I was. I was staying in a line and he started hitting me. And I didn't know who he was, you know, and I, but I knew what the problem was. And I understand it because Washington was a, a haven. It was this nerve center of the black community. And that had been disrupted by desegregation. And they probably got the story garbled. They may have assumed that I was the catalyst for this when actually the Supreme Court said these cases don't pass constitutional muster. And so they took it out on me. I had black friends in my community, but I, for some black uh, children, I was an object of, of hatred. They blamed me for this. I, I was a symbol of their loss, of something that was really important to them. They're teachers. 
in a lot of ways, it seems like your personal story and the complications of your experiences as a kid growing up in this time in Texas really mirrors, I think, a lot of the complicated feelings that people have about Juneteenth as a holiday that is both a holiday of celebration and also a holiday of pain and like acknowledging the legacy of that pain. Why do you think that Juneteenth has become something that has felt so powerful and important for so many Americans, um, especially over the last few years, as you have more people becoming aware of it and deciding to celebrate it? Well, I think people want to come to grips with the end of slavery and slavery itself. It's a day to think about the end of chattel slavery, but also to think about the institution itself, what it meant, the legacy that it left. Uh, You want to commemorate Black joy. It's important to think about Black people other than just as sorrowful people. People were really happy about this. I mean, they knew it was going to be a struggle and they celebrated in the midst of a lot of hostility, but they were happy at the prospect of not having their family sold. And I think people want to celebrating Black joy even as you remember Black struggle. It, it puts those two things together in a very nice way. It's, it's a day for education. I, it's a day to sort of honor the hope that they had and sort of tap into that because we still have stuff to do. And in some ways, I, I think that really hits at why it feels like even people who are not Black are excited about Juneteenth or feel like it speaks something to them. You know, I, I think that Fourth of July, for example, is a holiday that in many ways, to many of us, feels very forced or one-dimensional or superficial, that it is a uncomplicated form of patriotism or demonstration of patriotism. And I feel like Juneteenth is a holiday that's about loving a country and a history and a legacy that has also caused a lot of pain and being able to hold both those things at once. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's, and it's so (laughs) strangely enough, it's kind of a sweet holiday. I don't know why that word came to mind. And I think it's connected to joy and connected to family and really communing with people, music and relaxed in a a Southern kind of way. And I think it's sort of a, a little twinge, a little piece of the good things about the South that get spread across the country in a way, being a little bit laid back and easy. And so I think it marries affect with education and political awareness and in a way that I don't think any other holiday does. I, I didn't grow up celebrating Juneteenth. I'm from Florida, but it has become a holiday that I'm really excited about and I want to make it more of a tradition. What is your advice for people who want to start celebrating Juneteenth in a more meaningful way and how they should do that? Well, I would say make sure you gather together with people. It's a holiday that is best served by being with friends and family. You could make sure you have some sort of red drink. If you're opposed to soda water, you could try hibiscus tea, is what people think is the, the, the original red drink that people had. And commune with family. I mean, that's that's really what it's about, because as I said, the, the real horror for enslaved people, that you see this over and over again, was the prospect of the loss of family. And this holiday is about 
family and community. So if you can do that, if you can make that happen, that's a, a really important way to get started. Annette Gordon-Reed is a historian and law professor at Harvard. She's the author of a new book called On Juneteenth. And you can find more information about the book in today's show notes and at postreports.com. This story was produced by Sabby Robinson. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. I want to recommend that you check out a new podcast here at The Post called Please Go On. It's hosted by my colleague James Homan from the Opinions Desk, and he has frank and insightful conversations with people who have important views to share. This week, he interviews Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs about her view that the federal government needs to step in to protect voting rights. What I have said for months now is that no voter in America should have their access to the ballot determined by who holds the majority in their state legislature. Subscribe to Please Go On in your podcast app or find a link to that episode in today's show notes and at postreports.com. Our executive producer is Maggie Pentman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. The Post's new audio intern is Corey Suzuki. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.